This is ELT Today, brought to you by Frameworks Education Group. What does it really mean to be a connoisseur? We often use this word to refer to someone who is very knowledgeable in a subject. But in the words of musician and teaching artist Eric Booth, a connoisseur is one who is adept at coming to know. Or in other words, a master learner. This month I had the pleasure of speaking with Henrik Oprea, a master learner. He is the current president of Braz Tissot, a not-for-profit organization that fosters and supports institutions, research and teacher development in Brazil. I'm from Brazil and I was born in Brasilia, which is the capital of Brazil. I was born and raised here, spent all my life here. Hmm. But uh, my family is from all over the place, literally speaking. So um, my dad is, is from Israel, uh, and on his side of the family, my grandfather was born in Romania, and my grandmother was born in Russia. And uh, my last name, actually, Oprea, is a Romanian name. Um, okay. And on my mother's side of the family, my mom was born in Paris, in France. My grandmother is also French. My grandfather is German. And I know I have a great-grandmother who's Polish, uh, so, but that, that's as far as I went, because it was too complex for me at the time when I was doing some research in that area, right? Mm -hmm. And I was born in Brazil. So how did, and your family moved out to Brazil for work? Mainly, mainly on account of the war, mainly on account of the war, right? So uh, that's why they came here. My dad, he was born in... Um, was kind of like a, it was a place that was built by the English to protect people from the Nazis in Israel. So he was born there. And that was really curious because my dad tells me that when he was six, he could speak six different languages. Because at home he was speaking Russian and Romanian. Uh, he went to a school in which they taught him in English and French. And uh, on the streets he would speak Arabic and Hebrew. So uh, when he was six, he could speak six different languages. Wow. Right. How did you move into teaching English? Well, when I was a high school student and, uh, you know, that time of the day, the time of the year of your life in which you don't really know exactly what you're going to be doing, what you want to do, um, I decided I wanted to be a teacher. Uh, I wanted to teach high school. And uh, at that time, I wanted to teach history. Uh, my sister, was much, who is older than I am, and she, she was a teacher, she was a biologist, and she was a biology teacher. Um, but I was mainly drawn into that by my teachers. I really enjoyed their way of teaching and talking to people. And I saw in that uh, the chance to help people somehow. So I wanted to teach history. Mm. And, uh, but I was very shy. I was very, very shy. I didn't know if I could actually go in front of a classroom and talk to strangers and just do what has to be done. So um, one of my teachers, he told me that, my high school teachers told me that uh, after I had finished high school, I was already studying history at university. Mm -hmm. He told me that, well, maybe you could start teaching something to see how you feel in the classroom. And um, I, I had finished my English course here in Brazil, and uh, which is where I learned English. It's like, you know what, I'm going to try teaching English. And that's 
what I started doing. You know, I, I got a job teaching English, and I just fell in love with it. Teaching languages, I think it's it, it gives you the chance to talk about so many different topics, so many different things. Uh, that if I were just teaching history, I'd probably be teaching the same content over and over and over again. Today we're going to be talking about the French Revolution. Today we're going to talk about right. So, uh, and when you're teaching languages, you can use anything from any area. Today I can be using uh, biology, physics, chemistry, history, uh, current affairs. I can use anything I want to teach languages, right? So I actually fell in love with it. Mm. Uh, I, I started teaching in, back in 1997. That's when I started teaching English. Mm. And um, a little bit later, I dropped my history course, dropped out from my history university, and I started studying law. Uh, I studied law. I went to law school for one, one and a half year, and then I dropped it as well. So you know what? I'm teaching English. You know, I should be certified in that. So I went and I took my university degree in English and literature. Okay. Uh, and and later on a postgrad degree at the University of Birmingham in Tassel and Tassel. You know, you said something interesting that about you know wanting to get into teaching because you you know you thought you could help people. Quite often, a motivation for people becoming teachers, isn't it? That you feel that you can do something, yes. you can transform something, or... Yeah, I think that uh, as humans, we, we like this idea of helping others, you know, we feel good about that. Hmm. And uh, being a teacher, so especially when you're teaching uh, younger students, when I talk about, I like teaching high school students, right? I like teaching teenagers. Um, but the thing is that... What my teachers taught me, I, I know for a fact that it helped me shape the citizen I have become. Mm. Uh, not in a way they were just trying to, it's, it's not like a doctrine or anything like that. It's, it's about making you look at things from a different angle and a different perspective. And I felt that by being a teacher, I could actually contribute, even if it's just a tiny little bit. Hmm. to the formation of citizens in my country as well. So, so like this, is, this might be a way for us to start making a change, you know, like real change happening. And, and it all depends on education and the way that you treat others. So. Can you sort of paint us a quick picture of English language teaching in Brazil today? For example, what, what are some of the main concerns and issues? The, the thing about being in a country of continental dimensions like Brazil is that uh, there are many, many different challenges. Um, for one fact, you can travel all across Brazil, which is almost 4,000 kilometers, without hearing or speaking English. So uh, when you think about the countryside, uh, you can see that there is a there is a problem of uh, professional development in these areas for teachers to, where, where can I seek professional development? How can I improve? How can I be a better teacher? How can I actually uh, teach my students how to speak a language I haven't truly been exposed to? Especially when we think about the past, but Brazil is also a developing country, right? So uh, there are lots of problems in, the, in, in, in Brazil in terms of uh, resources how people get, have access to certain resources. So usually nowadays we tell people that, oh, but there's the internet and there are, there are computers and there are uh, Netflix and you can watch films and you can do this. But this is not accessible to everyone in Brazil. 
Mm. Uh, just yesterday, I was reading an article in which we said here in Brazil, we still have problems with uh, personal hygiene and, and not, not just that, but I mean infrastructure in cities in which one out of four Brazilians will still haven't got access to a proper sewer system. It, when you think about this kind of challenge, this kind of infrastructure problem, it also translates into the classroom and into the education world. Challenges are huge. Um, we do have lots of motivated professionals and excellent, outstanding professionals in Brazil. But reaching out to everyone and, and making sure that everyone has access to proper education, proper training to mm. become a better teacher and to make sure they deliver good lessons, I think this is the main challenge that we face nowadays in Brazil. It's how do we do that in a country in which we still have lots of problems with basic infrastructure uh, and, and how do you get these people to have access to that. Mm. So one of the things that we have been doing nowadays is working with Brass Diesel. We now we have 18 chapters, right. which is our way to reach out to other places in, in Brazil. Because, mm. right? But still, 18 chapters, there are 27 states in Brazil, so uh, we still have a long way to go, right? Mm. And each state is the size. We have states which are bigger than European countries. Brest started in 1986. Okay. Uh, so uh, it's all about the idea of volunteers who wanted to provide access to teacher training for mm -hmm. other teachers in Brazil. Yes. We are an associate of IATAFL and TESOL as well. So uh, ever since we started, 1986, every other year we have an international conference. 2018 we're going to have our next international conference in the south of Brazil. And uh, we have some new things going on. This is something I'm, I'm announcing to you firsthand, we're going to have some mini-courses during the conference, a 20-hour-long mini-course, so uh, during the PCEs, uh, the full day of the PCE, plus 12 extra hours during the conference, and you're going to have a certificate which is going to be accredited by the university as well, not just by Brass Diesel, so that's going to be great, so uh, we're working with the special interest groups to have that going. Mm -hmm. And we're putting together quite a big show, right, to everyone. Uh, in addition to the conference format, you have the plenaries, you have the workshops and talks. Uh, we, are, we are going to have also um, a live EFL talks. So uh, instead of a webinar, it's going to be the live session of EFL talks as Great. well. Great. So the conference itself, our last conference, our 15th Brassies International Conference was held in Brasilia. There were more than 1,200 teachers from all over Brazil, all over the world, and uh, we're looking forward to having lots of people. Now that we're in the south of Brazil, it's easier for people from the southern comp to join as well. Mm. Um, so people from Argentina, from Uruguay, Paraguay, Chile, and uh, we're looking in. We're really looking forward to receiving those people as well to come to the conference. Find the, that the uh, the local um, amount you know amount of people taking a CELTA, for example, um, in Brazil itself is growing. Uh, yes, I do believe it's growing. I do believe that people have 
in recent years learned about the certificates and learned about the benefits of taking such a certificate and such a course. Mm. Um, the amount of learning that takes place when you take that course is something that uh, all CELTA trainees, they, they praise. They say, like, I learned lots and lots of new things and I have, having the feedback and having someone observing me and helping me out has helped me grow so much as a professional. So, and another reason for that is that some teachers here in Brazil as well want to leave the country. So when you have a CELTA, when you, right, so it's easier for you to travel abroad and have a job and find a job, mm. right? So it's much easier than just saying that I've got my degree from my Brazilian university and that's it. Mm. Okay, here's, here's this other question I had. What kinds of locally informed methodologies are practiced in language teaching in Brazil? In Brazil, for example, when you go to most language and private language institutes, they actually abide by the rules of communicative language teaching with the implementation of uh, the lexical approach. Um, some people, and no, I, I myself am a big fan of dogme and teaching and blood as well. Uh, one of the largest uh, language institutes, if I'm not mistaken, that's what they advertise here, in the world, uh, in the, it's present in Brazil. Um, they they have just been purchased by a large publisher, and, and so it's huge. They use audiolingualism, right, and uh, extensively. Um, but the thing is, when, when we think about it, and that's something I, I've been pondering a lot about that, most of the teaching methodologies that we practice in an EFL setting, it's just <clears throat> it's just something that we have brought into the country from an ESL setting. So we don't really develop a new kind of methodology using what is studied in second language acquisition theories and all of that to actually just say, let's use it here. So um, there's still... Uh, a debate on whether or not you should use L1. It's a monolingual class, and why would you spend so much time talking and talking and talking and speaking English when students don't really understand when they're the ones who should be doing the talk, right, and not you as the teacher? If just like in one second you can just, okay, that's it, and let's move on, let's continue now, let's practice, let's mm -hmm. actually use it. Why do you so, think, because my all of my teaching experience well, my, my teaching experience comes from uh being you know in new zealand teaching people who've come to new zealand to learn english but then also the the other way around of living in spain for 11 12 years uh teaching teaching there and and it's it's coming from the it's coming from the locals themselves you know this um request even just the other day a friend who should know better because <laughs> she should know better she knows me um texted me said oh emra my friend's looking for an english teacher she wants a native speaker do you know anyone and like the first thing i was going to i had to text back is you should know better than to say yeah. <laughs> use those words with me <laughs> I, I, I think there is there is something in the market there as well and, and let's face it if if the clients, if your clients, they want to learn English and they want to learn it from native speakers, of course, you as a businessman, you're going to be hiring native speakers because you want to make money out of that and you want to give your clients what they want. But uh, I think it goes deeper than that. I actually wrote about it very recently. I can share it with you later. But uh, it goes deeper than that because the thing is, it's it's a, it's, it's a circle, right? It, it goes 
goes around and around and around because let's face it, if, if students are looking for a uh, native speaker as a teacher, native speakers teachers, they start just making more, receiving more offers to work in certain places because they want to get more students. But why does this happen? Uh, I think there's got something to do with the lack of professionalism in the profession as well. Hmm. Um, I think that sometimes we are to blame for that. When we don't really value what we do, we don't really value the profession. It's, it's when you're a non-native speaker and you start putting yourself at a lower position than a native speaker when you say that, oh no, I don't really know all of this, I don't know this, I don't know that, it's not, and, and it's, it's not that. We should value ourselves as well. We should say like, yeah, you can do this, you can learn it here. And um, one thing that's helped me a lot is that I'm a non-native speaker, despite my name. Uh, I learn English from non-native speaker teachers, fantastic teachers. Never, I have never lived abroad nor done anything abroad when I was learning English. And um, I don't think I have problems speaking English. And I know many friends of mine who also don't really have that, that kind of problem who are in the exact same situation. So it is about learning. It is about uh, what you want to learn. And, and how do you initiate a rumor? Well, maybe you're studying English because you want to or you have to but you don't really have the motivation or the dedication that you need to learn a language. And it's easier for you to put the blame on external factors. So you, you put the blame on the fact that, oh, I don't have a native speaker teacher, so I need to learn from a native. And something else that I hear a lot, not only about native speaker teachers, but about you cannot learn a language where it's not spoken. So if you truly want to learn the language, you have to travel, go to the US, go to Canada, go to England, go to Australia, New Zealand, because that's where you learn. And then some people who have spent like three years, four years, five years studying English here, they say, well, but you know what? I had to spend one year abroad and that's where I truly learned English. I didn't really know anything when I was living here. And this circulates when you talk about your friend, you know, if I tell this to a friend of mine, he ends up believing that. And that's in our brain, right? We, we choose to believe that because then it's easier for us to blame something else. Something that's not like, I need to learn how to sit down and study. I need to do my share as well. It's not just about the teacher, but I need to do my share. Most non-native teachers, they're actually better than native speaker teachers, right? So when, when students have that experience. Because the difference is not about your passport. It's about what you do. Are you a teacher? Great, you're a teacher. That's it. That's what counts. If you come to a country in which you cannot speak, uh, like you have to use L2 only all the time, and most people don't really have access to that L2, and you, you sell this as the perfect methodology, uh, there you go. Everyone said that, no, you have to speak English all the time, but some people couldn't really do that, so they felt inadequate for the job, and they started saying that, 
I'm not as good as that teacher because I can't speak English all the time. So it goes back to the 1980s, right? Uh, goes back a long time. Um, but it's a myth that we should fight and not fight the teachers who take advantage of that. So I can see lots of ads in new on Facebook nowadays in Brazil. Foreigners who come to Brazil say, you know what, because when you learn from a non from a non-native speaker, they teach you this, they teach you that, and they teach you this, and they try to make fun of that. I don't think that we should fight this just by saying to that guy, this is wrong, but informing the public, informing students hmm. of what really happens. If we start informing students and stop worrying about teachers, teachers will accommodate. They will just say, like, yeah, you know what, because students want something else. Maybe, maybe it's too idealistic, but I don't know, that's one way I, I've been thinking about fighting this back. I'm reading a very interesting book at the moment about decolonizing methodologies. And it was written for indigenous researchers in my country. And, um, and it's a very, very interesting uh, look at how so for generation through generation, you can actually inherit a sense of a little bit of shame that you're not quite good enough, that there's something out there that's better than you. And I sometimes wonder with this whole thing about native speakers is that um, it's a little bit of imperialism at work inside countries. It's, it's the way you see yourself yeah. in relation to the other, right? So you see yourself, how do you see yourself in relation to the other? And, um, and there are many ways that you can enforce that, or you can actually uh, decrease the strength of that movement, right? So mm. uh, it's all about how, how do you want to deal with that? Yeah. In our field, it's just, it's just, came to mind, it's just come to mind. Um, when we think about the role that grammar has taken in language teaching nowadays, it's like, no, grammar is, you, you don't teach grammar anymore, right? People say, like, you shouldn't teach grammar. You're teaching a grammar lesson? Come on. And um, so when you think about it, that was the, the edge that non-native speakers had. It's like, I know more grammar. <laughs> I can study that. Right? Mm. So it's still one more way for you to say that, no, you don't teach grammar. People don't learn a language by uh, learning the grammar of the language because you need, to, you need the vocabulary, you need the right pronunciation. Uh, and some people actually need the grammar. I have a private student right now, and he's told me this, and he was very explicit. He said, like, you know what? Uh, I don't care if you're going to be talking about English. Maybe it's not an English lesson right now, but what I want right now, I want a grammar lesson in Portuguese. I want to understand the grammar of English in Portuguese because that's how I learned Italian. I learned Italian. I went to Italy to take a course in Italy. We had six hours of courses every day, a six-hour course every day, four hours of which were dedicated to grammar and only two hours for a conversation. And that's how I learned. It's like, are you fluent in Italian? Yes, I am. And I learned because of grammar. I need that. It's like, okay, great. We, as long as you know what you really want. It's, but this idea of the way you see yourself in relation to the other, and uh, so, so this is very important. And this is how you start positioning yourself in this social hierarchy and, and society. And mm. that's how you, okay, where do I stand? Am I good enough for this? Am I not good enough for that? So... Yeah, that person is much better than I am. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, essentially, yeah, we've covered two issues. One, one the sort of um, issues of self-esteem or self-belief um, that can affect us as teachers 
uh, culturally and in, in our in our specific um, cultural context uh -huh. um, and in our, our position in the ELT world um, yeah. and, uh, and you know, how much we believe we can contribute to it um, and giving ourselves permission and feeling we have the permission to, and the, the mandate, you know. And then, and then the other issue, as you say, is, I mean, here you've, you've just uh, illustrated a point of learner-centeredness, really, where the learner, through their own reflection, has come with their argument to, argument to you for the kind of methodology or the kind of approach that they want. Um, yeah. And, um, and it's, you know, yes, it's probably breaking all, all, the, all the trends and all the rules of the moment. Jamie King wrote about the CELTA and the, the lack of differentiation in CELTA uh, in the IH journal, I think it was last year. And, um, but, you know, that's where it, it kind of interests me. The whole issue with CELTA is, you know, the, um, you know, within CELTA you're taught about differentiation. But then the CELTA course itself is very... It's a standardized course. So it's it's a dangerous thing because we all we're all looking for the silver bullet, right? So this is what works. This is how it works. We teaching people. We're so complex as individuals. And how can I say this is what works for everybody? And in many discussions and many arguments, I don't think that people are trying to listen to the other side of the story and really incorporate that and make something better. Mm. It's just about no, you're wrong. I'm right, and I'm going to prove to you that you're wrong. Mm. So. Hmm. Right? We've seen that in many different debates. When people hmm. talk about dogma and ELT, there was a time in which it was a heated debate and discussion about it. how can that work in it? And other people saying, like, no, it's just like it, as if it were religion. The lexical approach, the same thing. CLT, audiolingualism. And, and so we, we do tend to do that as human beings, right? Not as just as teachers. But very recently, I think they talked about, I'm not sure if it was the Celta or the Delta, which finally they, they gave up on using the learner styles. Right, the learning style, different learning styles, because that has been proven that it doesn't really mm. exist. So we're still teaching that. And think about the number of teachers who have been taught and trained as if that were the real deal, because they were not looking for the real data from science. As teachers, we should be, we should, we should have learned how to look for the source and, and how to go there and how to question what is passed on to us. Mm. Instead, we go to seminars, especially as beginner teachers, we go to a seminar we want to go to. I, I don't know if you agree with me, but there's a trend. When you start in your career, you choose the sessions based on what you can implement in your classroom on Monday already. So, like, okay, this is a, I'm going to be doing that. Mm -hmm. As time goes on, you start going to sessions which will, will make you think and reflect and come up with your own ideas, right? So, Absolutely. Actually, I was um, at a conference last year in Malta and the one thing I, I said, you know, I said I would really like to have a conference one t sometime that's organized in a sense that it's purely around reflection, that we're not going to sessions to hear people talk, to fill us up. But I just want us all to, to spend some time reflecting. But, um, and the more reflections you hear and the more things you hear from each other, the more you can adjust your own reflecting as well because there's just not enough reflecting going on i would that's what i would like an elt reflection conference because <laughs> there's not enough i mean i think any any um discipline 
um, poli- you know, anything, politics, art, anything, anybody in, in, would say uh, that w- one of our constant problems is that we just don't reflect enough and we don't practice reflection because reflection is a very active thing that requires a bit of work and it's not necessarily entertaining and easy. If there is more reflection going on, it's easier for you to, hold on, wait a minute, are you saying that this, this, and this? I don't really agree with that. Right? So, but when you go to talk just to listen to someone talk to you, they're like, yeah, you know what, yeah, because you were predisposed to accept what is told to you. It's the same thing when you go to a, a stand-up show. You go there and you want to laugh, so it doesn't really matter if the joke is good or bad. You're going to be laughing because... You set yourself, prepared yourself mentally for a comedy situation. So anything that they say, you're going to laugh because they're like, yeah, I think you're ready for this. You have prepared your brain to receive that. Same thing happens in conferences, right? You don't, you don't go prepared to reflect. You go prepared to tell me what I need to do and I'm going to repeat that, which is a very dangerous mindset for teachers. Thinking about reflection. Uh, and our conversation, every conversation I have with people talking about conferences and conferences attend and what they want to do, that gives me an idea or two. So let's see if we can implement something. Mm. Um, in Brest Diesel 2014, we had a chance to have an open space already, so uh, which we will go and reflect and discuss, which was really good, really interesting. Maybe we can bring that back to our conference as well and have an mm. open space as well for with, with a, a different format in which the participants are the presenters for all of them, right? So mm. call for papers is open. If people want to submit a proposal, the call for papers is open. Uh, if you go to brastiesel.org.br slash international conference, uh, you can see the hot site for the conference and you can submit a proposal to speak at the conference. The deadline is November 6th. That's the deadline for you to submit a proposal. And uh, you will hear an answer by December 4th. So that should give you plenty of time to plan your trip to pay for the conference, uh, which will be taking place in July next year. So it's July from July 19th to July 22nd. Brasil brasileiro, meu mulato risonei, vou cantar-te nos meus versos, o Brasil samba que dá pamboleio e faxinga, o Brasil do meu amor, terra de nosso senhor, Brasil. So that's it from me. Thanks, Henrik, for your time and the work you do in Brazil for education and to support teachers. You can check out Henrik's blog and the Brastiesel website. Links can be found in the description of this podcast. You've been listening to the Frameworks Education Group podcast ELT Today.